How's everybody feeling? Come with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Where's Matthew? It's before Mark, right? Jeez. All right, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Matthew 8, verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. I don't know how many times I've heard this passage. I don't know how many times I've heard it preached on. How many times I've preached it myself probably. And we assume things in the text that aren't there. (laughs) Uh, That we'll come back and we'll look at. But when you free yourself from your assumptions and you just let the text speak for itself, it paints a very different picture for us than what we might have thought when we first engaged it, especially if you've heard it explained or taught or thought much about it before. But we're doing this series um, that I'm kind of calling Technology of the Spirit. And we're looking at different ways in which science has come to confirm the Bible and really ways in which science is contradicting itself. (laughs) Everybody talks about, you know, the Bible contradicts itself, but we don't seem to look at how science can often contradict itself, right? And so part of our problem is most of us grew up under a scientific model that is 300, been going on for about the last 300 years, but in the last 100 years, probably maybe more last 60 years and definitely in the last 20, 25 years, there are scientific discoveries outside of the United States, some of them in the United States, but a lot of them outside of the United States that completely challenge the scientific paradigm that we've grown up under. And... Certainly we know as Christians that the Bible, and this story specifically, uh, contradicts a lot of what we're taught to think and believe scientifically. But we grow up in this culture, educated in our school systems, most of us, so we grow up with uh, a lot of assumptions that come out of an outdated view of science, out of what we would call really Newtonian physics, or what I kind of like to call macrophysics, because it's, it's an explanation for us. It's a language that explains for us how our time, space, dimensions, and world operates. And 
This story, it's so interesting because it's the only story that I can think of in the Bible where Jesus does not operate, at least at some level, within the constraints of time and space when he's bringing healing. Because remember, we've been using the metaphor, if you've been coming any time at all, you know, last couple of weeks, we've been using as a metaphor uh, the idea of a computer program. So if you're looking at a computer program, you're playing a computer game, you go into the game as a player, you're subject to whatever the structure of that game is as it was determined by the programmer, right? So if you're playing Pac-Man, somebody programmed the game Pac-Man to have the little yellow guy and the ghosts and the maze and the whole thing, right? And so when you're, when you're playing as a player, you, you have to conform to the rules that were determined by the programmer. But if you could see behind the images, you would see that there's a programming language that determines the structure of how everything in the game is going to work. And so Jesus, I know it's a silly metaphor, I feel embarrassed in heaven for using it, but I think it helps us understand that Jesus comes, when the Word becomes flesh, basically the programmer came down and played our game, inside the rules of our game, but he's operating from a different level, right? So... When he comes into this world, he's dealing with people that are used to the game. He's dealing with people that are used to the constraints of a time-space world. So almost every miracle that he does, he does in proximity, in closeness, or within the context of time and space. Lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. Well, you've got to get to them. <laughs> right? Or the, you can think about the woman with the issue of blood. She gets to Jesus, but she has to touch him before the power comes out of him. There's other places in the Gospels where it says power was flowing out of him, and whoever touched him was healed. Uh, he sends his disciples, two by two, to go into the city and to heal. So, so even though he's bringing healing, he's doing it within the confines of time and space. So in some respects, he's working miracles within the context of this uh, three-dimensional world in which we live, right? But this story completely uh, contradicts that because uh, he's willing to operate with the centurion within that context. He, he shows up and he asks him, he says, shall I go with you to heal your servant? Because that's been the expectation, right? And the centurion says, no, uh, I understand there's, there's an invisible world that's behind the visible world. I understand that, that in the visible world, I have authority, and if I say to one, he come, he comes. If I say go, he goes. If I tell him to do something, he does it. And yet, I understand that you operate in an invisible arena that operates on the same principles, but we can't see it. And you have authority, so therefore, you can just speak the word, and if you speak the word only, my servant will be healed. Right? And so I've heard a ton of messages about the authority of God. One word from God will change the situation, right? Or... Or speak the word only, I mean, the authority of the believer, all that stuff within that context, right? And what's so interesting was that not only does Jesus transcend time or space, but it says as soon as he tells the centurion, you know, it'll be unto, done to you according as have you as according to how you have believed. It says at that very moment, his servant was healed. There's no process of time either, right? So Jesus really, in this story, he's stepping outside of the, the confines of time and space. And it totally violates our scientific assumptions that make up our secular worldview. And really, really, if we're honest, science is the religion of the state in America. 
In order for something to be validated, uh, in order for something to be considered valid, it has to be scientifically approved, but not just scientifically approved, it's got to be scientifically approved by the powers that be. So I can relate to this in in the therapy world, uh, because as a therapist, one of the things that we had to learn was this thing called evidence-based practices. And there are certain, you know, insurances, oftentimes when you go to a therapist, they have to uh, uh, use a certain therapeutic modality. So fancy terms, but they, they have to do counseling in a certain way in order to get paid. Because they're only going to pay for what the evidence says works. But the problem is, is that evidence is all funded and controlled by an academy or a system that says we're only going to put our stamp of approval on the things that we want. And really, it is a form of control. So you understand that religion and statehood have always kind of been married in order to control people. So the whole, and, 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 and when religion and state are married, then the state controls the flow of information based on its system of control. So the whole, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is just how, this is just how power structures work. So think about, if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, right? In the Protestant Reformation, you had, at that time, you had state-run churches. We still see it today. The Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Church of England, whatever. You you see how the the state was using religion to control. Right? We understand that, right? And so the whole issue with the, the Reformation was, was that the Roman Catholic Church was not making available certain information to the people that would free them. So Martin Luther comes along, and some others, who give people access to new information that challenges the paradigm or the worldview of the state. Are you breathing? Now, what's so interesting is because, and really it's true, science is the new religion of the state in America. And so therefore, the the truth is, is that there are scientific experiments and things that are being discovered and happening outside of the power structures, outside of the United States in general, and outside of the academies that would put their their, uh, validation on the scientific discoveries. So a lot of things that you get get told will be condemned as pseudoscience or it's not quite right or accurate or whatever, but it's really just a system of control. Because it challenges assumptions that leave us very disempowered. Would you like to know what some of those assumptions are? The first one that I'm going to give, and there's several I could give you, but the one for today, the first one I want to give you is we kind of operate under this assumption scientifically that life is a series of random and unrelated events. That life just kind of happens, right? Stuff happens, (laughs) right? And and really, you're random because they tell us that we came from a, you know, soup, <laughs> like this primordial soup or whatever that just evolved into these different life forms and eventually you showed up, right? And so really, life is just this cosmic, cosmic accident. There's no purpose. There's no design behind it. There's no intelligence that's running things. And so therefore, we end up living life trying to react or respond to just all this stuff that's being thrown at us, Right? The other thing that we're taught is that we are uh, are separate from our bodies in this sense, that we have no power to heal ourselves, that all healing must come from outside through some scientifically validated form that we call medicine. 
or herbs or whatever. But the idea that you could do anything independently of that to heal yourself, we don't believe that scientifically in our culture, right? And we don't believe it in the church. And we'll look at that in a second. The other thing is, is that we're, because we operate under these assumptions of time and space, we think we're separate from everything. We're separate, we're disconnected from our world around us. And that breeds all kinds of separation in our societal structures. And then finally, the one I want to focus on, we, we, we're told scientifically that our thoughts and our feelings have no power to uh, do anything outside of our bodies. So in other words, when you're working with your thoughts and feelings, you're only working on your in, inward self, your internal self. And at best, you can hope to change your behavior. At best, you can hope to feel better. Right? But basically, there's nothing else going on there that your thoughts and feelings are affecting. So much so that if we were to talk about mind over matter, people who are scientifically brainwashed in America will say that's occultism, that's new age, that's pseudoscience, whatever. There's no proof of any of that. And that's just absolutely not true. There is a ton of proof. There's, there are whole institutes and schools of, of experimentation that are working on all this stuff that is absolutely shattering the, the, the worldview that we've held for 300 years. Are you doing all right? So what I want to do is just give you a few that's going to validate biblical experience in order to shift our worldview because we are still carrying, as Americans, we are still carrying the presuppositions of our culture and we have to deal with them every day. And so really, what, what we don't realize is that a very unconscious level, a very a deep level of unconscious thought, we are holding presuppositions that are more loyal to the religion of science than to the Bible or to Jesus. And what's so interesting is that even science is invalidating its own previous assumptions. Okay? So let's look at uh, three... No, well, yeah, let's, let's don't do that. Let me move, move up. Sorry, I'm looking at my notes. I'm talking to myself. Um, so let's, let's look at three experiments. Actually, four, but let's look at three. <laughs> Primarily, that changed everything. And so the first one I want to look at is a scientific experiment that was done in the mid-90s by the Russian Academy of Sciences. All right? So in the Russian, what these guys did was they took protons. Now, for those of you that, you know, didn't do well in science like me, protons are the, the, the teeny tiny, you can't see them, but they are the, one of the essential building blocks of all matter, right? So if you understand that everything in this room is made up of atoms, and then atoms contain protons, but just to make it simple, uh, protons are the building block of the world outside our skin, right? The world around us, the creation in which we live, right? So what these scientists did was they took a, a tube, essentially, and they, they, they took these photons and put them in this tube, and the photons would arrange themselves uh, in just a random pattern like that, like you see up there on the screen. And then what they did was they took some living DNA. Now, everybody knows what DNA is, right, because of the CSI stuff on TV or whatever. You know, the DNA is how they catch criminals, right? <laughs> I mean, some people think that's, just, that's all it's there for, right? But, but actually, your DNA is the, the building block of your biology, so that everything about your physical characteristics and who you are and whatever is coded into every strand 
of your DNA, right? So they take a strand of the DNA. So they take the building block of life and the building block of matter, and they put the two together. They insert DNA in there, and look what the photons do. That little, that thing there that looks like a staircase or whatever, it's called a double helix. It's the shape of your DNA. If you could look at your DNA under a microscope, that's what it would look like. And so what happened was, you can see in this picture, is that the photons arranged themselves perfectly corresponding to the shape and the structure of the DNA. And they did that all by themselves without anybody telling them to do that. Isn't that interesting? Just the presence of it. And then they take the DNA strand out and it holds in that same pattern. Very interesting, isn't it? And so what this began to uncover is the fact that we do not live separately from the world around us and we do not live as passive observers of whatever's going on trying to react to whatever's happening. That at very deep levels, levels that are so deep that, that it is the essence of who we are and the essence of the way creation is made that the two are, that, that creation literally is made to respond to living organisms, to respond to DNA. And what's interesting is that this was nothing new to quantum physicists, because quantum physicists have known this since at least the middle of the last century, that the observer changes at a subatomic level the structure of reality. That everything actually exists in a waveform until there is an observer, and once there is an observer, the wave turns into a particle and becomes solid. If something exists as a wave, it's, it's not solid. When it becomes a particle, it becomes solid. And what causes things to become solid is the presence of an observer. So the, it begs the question, how did the photons know the DNA was there? How did the photons know to arrange around the DNA? Or how does everything in our existence know when there is an observer present? That it must change its structure to the, really the expectation of the observer. That's science. All right. Moving right along. Experiment number two. This was done by the U.S. Army in the 1990s. I don't have graphics for this one, but this one's fairly simple. This was done in the 1990s by the U.S. Army. They wanted to uh, see the effect of emotion upon human DNA. So they took subjects and they swabbed their uh, mouth and they isolated some DNA strands and they moved them into other rooms in the building so that they were away from and in another part of the building from the people that they came from. And then they took the people that they, that they came from and they subjected them to videos and images that were specifically designed to change the emotional state of the person from whom the DNA had come. So, for example, they would show uh, maybe horrible images of warfare. They would maybe show pictures that, you know, those uh, commercials of the dogs that, you know, that they, that with the song that's like give to our animal shelter thing, you know, that kind of pulls on your heartstrings or whatever. They would show, they actually showed them erotic images so they could get some kind of a, a sexual response going on as well. And what they discovered was that every time there was a peak or a valley, in the emotional experience, there was an electrical charge that would register in the DNA without any um, passage of time whatsoever. So that somehow, even in another room, the DNA is linked 
to the emotion of the person from whom the DNA came, and it's instantaneous. So the question becomes, how does the DNA know to respond to the feeling? And how is that information travel without any time whatsoever taking place? Any measurable time at all? Now, that was published. That was a published study. But the, the head researcher uh, from the Army came out later, and he told someone, he told another scientist at a, at a conference, he said, we actually replicated that experiment, but we, we kept stretching out the distances to see how long it would take. And he said, we finally quit at a span of 350 miles. So watch this. They would take some of the DNA, they would stretch it and take it and remove it 350 miles from the observer. They would do things to manipulate the emotional state of the observer. And every time there'd be a peak in a valley, the DNA 350 miles away would respond. They timed it with an atomic clock in Colorado, and there was no measurable time, even at an atomic level, no measurable time at all. So theoretically, faster than the speed of light, instantaneously, as soon as the emotion changes, the DNA responds. How is that possible? Third experiment, and these are just a few. There's, there's literally hundreds of them out there. Third exper- experiment. This one was done by an institute in Northern California. They developed special instruments as a way to measure the heart's energetic field. And I showed you this um, last week, but that's, that's what their instruments detected. That field that is around that person is actually being generated. It's uh, electromagnetic energy being generated from the heart itself that forms this donut-shaped circumference, and it's eight feet in circumference around you. And their instruments are so fine that what they would do is they would teach people how to shift their emotional state, and every time they would shift their emotional state, they could detect it in the field. Interesting, isn't it? Now, the other thing that they did, and I actually wrote my master's thesis when I was, when I was going to Adam State, I actually wrote my master's thesis on this. The other thing that they did was they looked at how do emotions impact the DNA and the body in terms of immune system, disease, and stuff like that. And so what they did was they trained people how to come up with what they would call coherent emotional states, meaning, meaning a, 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 almost a pure emotion. So how many of you know you go through something, especially something negative, you can be very conflicted about how you feel about something. Anybody ever been conflicted? about anything, or you go through a, a difficult emotional state and maybe you're, you're shocked and you're angry and you're sad and you feel guilty about it all at the same time. That's normal, by the way. That's, that doesn't make you crazy. That's just a normal experience. But what they did was they taught these practitioners how to go into a meditative state and hold one emotion in focus, right? And then they measured and looked for the effects on the human body. And what they discovered was that if a person could hold a state of gratitude for three minutes, that the immune system would increase something like 33%, and your body would actually begin to release a chemical uh, that literally what happens when you're holding appreciation, you're turning on DNA switches that is releasing chemicals into your body specifically designed to fight disease. And they could watch the DNA strand relax. And they found out that the most, that the healthiest emotions in terms of your physical health were appreciation, thanksgiving, 
compassion and love. On the flip side of that, distressful states did the exact opposite. It tightened up the DNA. It's turned off certain chemicals. Actually, the other thing, this is like really cool because I just had a birthday. When you were in that state of appreciation, anti-aging chemicals were also released into the body. It'll make you want to learn to be thankful, huh? As the years go by. But so what they discovered was that other states would have other effects. But your DNA, here's the point, your, your biology is responding constantly to the state of what's going on inside your heart. For good or, you know, for better or for worse. Make sense? Now if you put these things together, then what you discover is, is that our DNA, there's something in our DNA at least, at the very least in our DNA, that's communicating at a subatomic level with matter. And matter is responding. There's a conversation going on. And your DNA is responding to your heartfelt beliefs, to your emotions. So really what we could say is there's a conversation of emotion. See, all these things, emotion is a language. Feelings are a language. Science is a language. Your DNA has language. So we could say it this way. The language of feeling is communicating to your biology. Your heartfelt emotion is talking to your DNA, and your DNA is talking to the world around you. And when they begin to look at all these different things, that it's not an issue of time and space. It's not like the, the person, think about it this way, the person whose DNA was 350 miles away, they didn't have to sit there and think and try to project a wave of emotion 350 miles in order for that emotion to reach the DNA so it could respond. They were connected at a higher level. They were connected at a deeper level so that at an invisible level, but still connected so that the instant the emotion changed, the DNA responded. So that things have a level of unity in dimensions. So now physicists are talking about other dimensions. Because mathematically, how do you make all this work? And the only way they can make it work is they come up with some of them 25 different dimensions of reality. And you're only experiencing three. (laughs) I think the Bible calls those the heavens. (laughs) Right? So, my presupposition is this, based on the Bible, and based on what science is now saying, we have to learn the ways of our heart if we're going to be able to hack the program behind the game that we're playing. In other words, what science is showing us more and more, and what the Bible says for sure, is that what's going on in our heart is actually interacting with the programming language of what's showing up in our life and we're experiencing. And here's the interesting thing about the heart. The heart thinks very, very differently than the mind. The heart thinks, very, the heart thinks in feeling. The heart thinks in images. The heart thinks in metaphor and intuition. The mind thinks in linear, structural, time. So it's like your mind is engaged in this time-space world, but your, your heart is somewhere else. 
And what we thought was what, what was going on in our heart just determined whether we were happy or not, just determined our emotional state. But actually what we're finding out is that what's going on in your heart is speaking to the... I, I hate to say it this way because of the way it sounds, but I don't know how else to say it. Your heart is speaking to the universe at very deep levels, and the universe is responding and speaking back to you. And we're all connected. All right. Let me give you another experiment. This comes from China. In China, they have, uh, they're doing experiments with medicine-less hospitals. (laughs) Did you catch that? And so one of the things that they have over there is just faith healers, all right? Just faith healers. Now, you're, you're trained in your religious programming. The moment I start talking about this, your training probably tells you, oh, that's demonic. Unless you got saved in this church or whatever. But that's how I was trained. Come on, guys. Help me out. Right? So, but, but what if it's not demonic? What if it's the way God structured the world to respond to human beings? What if when God gave Adam dominion over the planet... He put something inside him that actually dominated. (laughs) And maybe all human potential isn't corrupt. Maybe we need to think in terms more of original blessing than we do in original sin. Because because before there was, quote-unquote, what really St. Augustine called original sin, there was the original blessing in the garden where God blessed man and God said, have dominion, have authority, increase, be fruitful, multiply. God blessed creation. God blessed humanity. Maybe he put something inside that blessing that, that, that was so powerful that original sin could not, it could taint it, it could disrupt it, and it could limit it, but it could not defeat it. Oh, come on. That, that's a... Good place to say amen. It really is. So back to the experiment. So they take this faith healer in China and what they do is they bring a woman who has a tumor in her side. And I, I can't remember the measuring instruments. I don't know if it was a, if it was a sonogram or a PET scan or what it was, but they, they hook her up to this thing where you can watch the tumor on the, on the, on the screen, right? Where it's seeing through her and it's showing you the tumor. And then they hooked, they put the, the faith healer in a different room and they connected her brain, her, 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 they connected her to, you know, something that would measure the activity in the brain, right? Whatever those things are called. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So they're watching the tumor and they're watching what she's doing in her brain at the same time. Now, if you came up in the faith movement, listen to me very closely. What they discovered was this. That tumor disappeared in three minutes. You can watch it. I watched it. I watched the the video of it. That tumor disappeared in three minutes. You can watch it shrink and disappear. But here's the interesting thing. What, What changed in the brain of the faith healer is the most interesting thing. Because here's what happened. The verbal, meaning words, and rational, and reasonable, and logical, and linear part of the brain almost came to a complete standstill. Nothing. What lit up was the feeling, emotional, image-based, what we would really call heart-based activity in the brain shot way up. 
So what that tells us is what she was doing inside. What she was not doing was speaking a word, cognitive. She was not coming at a cognitive level or at a word-based level saying, tumor go away, tumor be healed, person be healed. But what she was actually doing was creating a feeling inside herself and an image at a heart-based level. Outside the realm of our human language. And the feeling was impacting the tumor. Now, this tells us something. Our feelings matter. Actually, what it tells us, really, it's not so much mind over matter as it is heart over matter. And that's the exact opposite of what I was taught. Because what I was taught was, uh, don't listen to your feelings. (laughs) Faith is not a feeling. But actually, feelings are the language that connects with the invisible world. And it's all throughout the Bible. Because the Bible speaks about the heart, not the head. (laughs) If you believe in your heart, what you say will come to pass. If you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confessed with your mouth, you'll be saved. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And the language of the heart is totally different than the language of the head. I told you this last week, but it bears repeating. The electromagnetic energy that's coming from your brain is 500 times weaker than the energy that's coming from your heart. If you generate a feeling, it is 500 times stronger than a thought. The energy of it. And yet we're told by science... That you can change the way you feel by changing the way you think. I've been there, done that, bought several of the t-shirts, worn them out. It's very limited. Uh, It leads to emotional constipation. (laughs) I'm just saying, it just does. You, You become Mr. Spock. You bottle up inside, you do everything from your head. Right? And you think that's how you're supposed to go at life. The problem is you're missing out on the most powerful language that God gave you. Think about it this way. When a baby comes out of the womb, they don't need to be taught how to feel. It's about the only thing you come out of the womb doing naturally is feeling and processing emotions. Think about it. You have to be taught how to think. You have to be taught how to read. You have to be taught how to go to the bathroom. You have to be taught how to walk. But nobody had to teach you how to feel. It's innate. It's, it's, it's the language of humanity. And so what, what's happened to us in the church is we get a revelation that God wants to work miracles. We get a revelation that God wants to heal. We get a revelation that we're sons and daughters of God. But then what happens is we, we give into a religious-based stronghold that is rooted in a Western view and not a Hebraic view. That says, if you want to walk in faith, it's the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. Don't pay attention to what you feel. And it's the exact opposite. If you have the feeling, you don't have to have the Word. See, I was taught, if I just speak the Word enough, it will get down in my heart. How is that possible when Jesus said, these draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me? According to my teaching, that's an impossibility. And it doesn't matter what your heart's doing, because you don't listen to what you're feeling. 
Come on, am I talking to the right people in here? So we're taught our feelings don't matter. We're taught that faith is not a feeling. We're taught that our feelings will take us away from God and take us away from righteousness. I'll give you an example. One preacher that I looked up that you all would love if I said his name. Said this. Our feelings are attempting to destroy our spirits. Our souls. We must continually brush them away by faith in God's Word. Rebuking them according to God's Word, which says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen to the presuppositions in that. Your feelings are akin to the devil. And you gotta shoo them away and stand on the Word. And, and so what's happening is, is you're gonna have to be 500 times stronger over here as if you just deal with your feelings. From a Hebraic viewpoint, well, they would call prayer, this is this from a Jewish standpoint, Hebraic, prayer is also called the service of the heart. And they say what really matters in prayer is not the words, but the, the Hebrew word for it is the kavanah, the, the intention and the feeling and the passion that you're putting into the prayer is what really matters. So James said, the effectual, heartfelt, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. We want formulas. God wants feeling. We say, no feeling, chew it, shoot it away, and give me the formula. And I'll stand on the formula. And God says, I don't want the formula. The, the, it's, it, the formula don't work. <laughs> What's working is, is what, what the language of the universe, the language of God in many respects, is a language of intuition. It's a language of feeling. It's a language of images and pictures. It's a language of dreams and visions. And how many of it, it took you, it took you two dreams to realize your dreams don't follow the same rules as your waking life? Your waking life is linear. Your dream world is completely outside of that realm. Because really in your dreams, you're tapping into those dimensions. You're tapping into those realms. A lot of you leave your body every night when you dream. You're not just dreaming. You're interacting with the spiritual dimensions and with the spiritual world. You just don't know what you're doing. And nobody's trained you how to work with your dreams and work with those situations in order to bring things to pass and accomplish stuff in your daily life. We don't even have a language for that in the church. But it's absolutely true. We had a lady in this church. I'll just give you an example. We had a lady in this church. She didn't want, she wouldn't want you to know who, who it was. But she, she fell asleep and had a dream. And in this dream, she pops out of her body. And she's floating around her house. But, darn it, we've been talking about this stuff. We've been, we've been doing this stuff with intention. <laughs> you don't know about it because we don't do it on Sunday morning because it freaks you out. She pops out of her body. She's floating around her house. Oh, that sounds new age. That sounds a cult. It's Bible. <laughs> Everybody has a right to the spirit world except Christians. And we're the only ones that actually have a right to it. What do you think God redeemed when He redeemed you? What do you think He saved when He saved you if it wasn't your human potential? If we've got so much power, how come the occultists can do it and we can't? So this lady loves Jesus with all her heart, pops out of her body, floating around her house, going up in her attic, seeing all this stuff. And then the next thing she knows, she's flying across the United States. This is absolutely a true story. Flying across the United States, ends up in a small town somewhere in Pennsylvania that she never heard of before. Ends up in an address, sees the address, ends up at the house 
walks into the house of a couple who had just, within the last month, lost their 17-year-old daughter in a car accident while they were on vacation. They got the call on vacation to come home because they had lost their daughter. And she walks into the room. Now, this is all happening in the dream world. She walks into the room and she has a conversation with the couple, ministers to them. Angels come and minister to the couple. Then I show up in the dream and say, it's time to go. She comes back and gets sucked back into her body, wakes up, gets on the Internet. I don't even know if there's a town like this. Gets on the Internet finds the town, finds the local newspaper, finds the obituary, finds the name of the girl that was killed in a car accident, and, the addri- and all that stuff that was in her dream, validated. Do with that what you want. Back to heartfelt beliefs. <laughs> Let's go back into the story for just a minute. The man comes to Jesus and says, he he comes because of something in his heart, something that he's feeling. His servant, he obviously cared for his servant. His servant's paralyzed. His servant is suffering. So he comes with intention. He comes with feeling. He comes with compassion, right? And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus has been operating according to our rules. And he asks the man a question, do you want me to come with you? Do you want me to bridge the space gap and come with you and heal him? And the man says, no, you don't have to do that. There's something in an invisible arena where you have authority. And all you have to do is speak the word and something will happen. Right? And Jesus says what? I have not found such great faith, not even in all of Israel. And then we take off as preachers and we say, great faith just takes the word. And here's what we miss in the story. Jesus never spoke the word. He never spoke to the sickness. He never told anything to go or anything to come. What he tells the man is, what you have believed... Let it be done. But that's a terrible translation. Because in the original language, in the Greek, it's where we get the word Genesis. And Genesis is the word for creation. Think about generation. Generating something. So actually what Jesus speaks of is what you've believed in your heart has caused. This is how it's said in the, in the Greek, because it's, it's, in the, it's in the cause in the tense. What you have believed in your heart has caused something to be created, has caused what you believe to be created and generated. What you've believed in your heart, what you have believed, has caused something that didn't exist before to come into existence. See, Jesus actually came to show us who we could be. 
He actually came to show us what we could do. He actually said, the works that I do, you shall do also. Not I'll do them through you. Not I'll do them with you. Not I'll do them instead of you. Jesus never said that. In John 14, whatever we love to quote it, the works that I do. But it's what He said, the works that I do, you shall do also. He didn't say, the works that I do, I'll do instead of you. The works that I do, I'll continue doing for you. The works that I do, you will do. So that's why in 1 Corinthians, if you look closely, it's not the gift of miracles. It's the gift of the working of miracles. Because the miracle is in you. The power is in you. If Christ is in you, then all the power of creation is inside of you. The, the, you are, Christ is the matrix of creation, and you're connected to that matrix. In Him, Paul says, we live and move and have our being. So all that power, all that potential, all that ability. Listen, all the potential you need to change your life. All the potential you need, that you need to bring healing. All the power that you need to bring healing. All the power that you need to bring change into the earth. All the power that you need to bring change into your life. It's already inside of you. But the conduit through which it comes. The conduit through which it comes. So, so, so if, if we turn on power, there's wires that go from the power source to the light. And we might call those wires a conduit that gets it out where we need it. And the conduit is not your voice. The conduit is not your thinking. The conduit is not even the word. The conduit is the language of feeling. The language of heartfelt feeling. If, if you would pray from the position of feeling. See, see, the, our problem is somebody comes to us for prayer. We want to pray about something. And we're thinking, how do I language it? How do I say it just right? How do I follow all the steps? How do I get the formula just right? When, they, when what we should be asking ourselves is what is going on at a heart level? We need to learn to be able to shut down the, the, the logical, linear, reasoning faculties of our brain. And we've got to be able to begin to activate heartfelt feelings so so that when we're creating the prayer, we're actually creating the feeling of the prayer. And when we're creating the prayer, we're actually creating the image of the prayer. And we're not trying to project it because we don't have to project it. Because at that level, we're all connected. At that level, we're connected with creation. And so I create the feeling of it. And then I move out from the basis of the heartfelt feeling. And I can say, monkey see, monkey do. As a point of release. Because the conduit is the heartfelt feeling. And it's the very thing in the church we're taught not to explore or to look at or to work with or to work through. So that basically what happens to us is we go through situations in life, we're not taught how to deal with our emotions. We're not taught how to deal with our feelings. So we go through situations in life and we become emotionally stuck. And we vacate our heart for our mind. Because it's a safer place. It's linear. It's logical. I don't know how to deal with all this feeling stuff out here. And our biggest problem is we judge our feelings and our emotions and our situations based on whether they're pleasant or they're unpleasant. And then we judge ourselves based on those feelings. And then we cut ourselves off from that source of life and power. 
when what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to step back from a situation and we need to be able to allow ourselves to feel the experience without judging the experience or without judging ourselves in the process. See, I can go through a horrible experience in life And if I just won't judge it, if I'll just allow the feelings to emerge, if I'll allow myself to engage a horrible experience at the level of feeling and not at the level of thinking, then what happens is, is those emotions are there to help me process what I'm going through. To help me experience what I'm going through. To inform me about what I'm going through. And what I've found is that when people get all stuck emotionally, if you can get them to disconnect from their judgments, this was good, this was bad, I'm bad for feeling this. Like, like just even anger. Christians can't even feel angry because we have to forgive. And we have to be loving. And so don't listen to your emotions. Don't go in that scary place. That's the devil. Rebuke it. Bind it. Cast it out. What if you could just feel it? And not let it get stuck in your story. And not let it get stuck in your judgments. And not get it, let it get stuck in your sense of identity. That energy will pass through you. Just like it does a child. The reason a child can go from sad to angry to happy in ten minutes is because they're not judging their experience. They're having an experience. And so all you got to do is let yourself have the feeling. And don't judge it. And wait for it to work its way through you. Realizing that my base feelings are actually from God and not from life. That at my foundation is joy at my foundation is peace at my foundation is gratefulness and compassion and it's eating from the tree the good bad tree that causes me to get stuck in those other experiences and if I believe in original sin then I believe that I have no ability in myself, inherent in me, no original blessing, that allows for the rectification of my life through the processing of my feelings as I walk through an experience. In other words, God didn't design you to be angry all the time. He didn't design you to be frustrated all the time. He didn't design you to be in sorrow and depression or anxiety and panic. He didn't design that stuff for you. But they're real experiences. What he designed for you was hope. What he designed for you was love. What he designed for you was compassion and gratitude. And so here's the truth. If you'll just allow yourself to experience the anger until it passes through you without judgment. If you'll allow yourself to experience the fear until it passes through you without judgment. You will come back home to your heart. You will come back home your life will stay in line with what God's created for you to stay in line with. And the whole issue of forgiveness is not God up there saying, well, you're being bad. 
You're not forgiven, so I'm not going to forgive you. As much as it is, forgiveness is the process of releasing the emotional charge of whatever's happened to you so that you don't stay stuck there and you can get back into a place of peace and harmony and freedom and compassion and joy. The word in the Greek for forgiveness is the same as the word for release. So the key to forgiveness is I'm not going to judge you. I'm pick on Rob. There's nothing going on here. I'm just using it as an example. I'm not going to judge Rob for hurting me. I'm not going to make him into an evil person or a villain in my mind so I can make myself a victim. I'm going to allow myself to have the experience of whatever the emotions I'm feeling, but I'm going to release the charge. And then I'm going to have the power in and of myself when I return to compassion, when I return to peace, when I return to joy. Now, whatever he did doesn't matter so much because he can't control my experience because whatever he did to me didn't get trapped in my judgments about who he is. Does that make sense? So whatever you went through, abuse, rejection, used, whatever, whatever people have done to you, the only life and power that experience has for you is the life and power that you continue to give it and that I continue to give it through our judgment. And as long as you hold on to it, you'll be continually tormented. <laughs> you'll be continually victimized, but it's a stronghold in your mind. It's not the circumstances. And all release is doing is saying, actually, forgiveness is the most empowering thing that you can do because it's impossible to forgive from a victim stance. It's impossible. And so when you forgive, basically you say, you do not have the power to define me. You do not have the power to control me. You do not have the power to dictate to me my emotional experience. So therefore, I'm releasing. It's not even about releasing him. It's about releasing the emotional charge so that I can get back to living where God told me to live. Where God created me to live. With what God put inside of me as a child of God. So I can start talking to the universe in the language of appreciation. And I can start talking to the universe in the language of love. And in the language of compassion. And guess what? The feedback that I start to get back from the universe is going to totally change. So you cannot work miracles if you're stuck and emotionally constipated <laughs> and conflicted. That's why I'm, I'm saying we've got to pay attention to our hearts. It's a matter of the heart. Let's bow our heads. Father, I did my very best this morning to speak what you put in my heart. And there's life in it. There's release and there is healing. And so, Holy Spirit, I thank you right now that you are touching and 
speaking and releasing our hearts from fear, from judgments, from guilt, from shame, from condemnation, from pain. Don't be afraid to open up Pandora's box. Some of you are like, if I open up what's in there, I may get stuck in there. It won't happen. I promise you it won't happen. If you allow yourself the freedom to feel, if you allow yourself the freedom to release the emotional charges, it will be short-lived and you'll come back to where God created you and built inside of you to live.